with the close of our service today, we'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper at North Wake is a celebration that's open to everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who is currently walking in fellowship with Him. That is that you have placed your faith and trust in Christ to be your Savior, and you are walking with Him, uh, repenting of your sin, forsaking it, fighting against it, and the table is open for you. If you don't meet those requirements during that time, it's a time for you just to feel free to stay where you are and speak with God about the matters he's been speaking to you about during the service, seeking his grace as you have need of it. So we look forward to that. First, we're going to open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. So if you'll do that, I'd like to lead us in prayer as we ready ourselves, okay? Let's pray. God, please be kind to us. The words that come to us through your son this morning are hard words. We'll be likely to fight them and resist them and try to explain them away. God, I pray that you'd help us to believe them, to believe that they are good for us. They come from your love for us. So give us teachable hearts, ears to hear, and a willingness to trust you in ways that we have not before. We ask this in Christ's name. As we get started, a couple things are really going to be helpful today to settle up front. First is simply this. Do you trust Jesus? Do you really trust the teaching of Jesus to be beyond all other goods, the best life that you could ever walk in? Do you trust him so much that you're willing to obey him no matter what he asks of you? without looking for an exception clause or a way out of it? Do you love him such that you're willing to obey him in the matters that we're about to look at? And I I think it's helpful to establish that because what we're about to to study this morning is, I believe, the very core of Jesus' um, life and ministry, not only of his teaching, but also of his life. And uh, it is not like us to want to do this. Jesus is about to turn our apple carts upside down. Uh, This is not our normal reaction to things, what Jesus is asking us to do today. And it is going to require us to trust him and to believe him and to follow him in ways that are not normal, not natural for us. To do that, I want you to listen closely to the first part of the teaching that we're going to get today. It comes from Matthew 5. It starts in verse 38. It goes like this. It's one of Jesus, uh, it's the fifth of Jesus' six, you've heard it said, but I say to you kind of teaching that he's doing at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, if you slow down and think about what Jesus has just asked you to do, I mean, really think about it. 
you have to be wondering, what in the world is he thinking? I'm going to read it to you again. Listen closely to it. He says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. If he wants your shirt, give him your coat, basically. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What in the world? I mean, this sounds like, to me, a prescription for being beat up, naked, enslaved, and poor. Right? I mean, honestly, if you left here and did this, that's what you'd be in a matter of weeks. What in the world is Jesus doing? Why is he asking this of us? And so as we look at it, there are two temptations that I want to push aside as we think about it. The first is simply to decide, this is undoable, I'll pass. Okay? It's not an option for those of us who say we follow Christ. So that's not an option. The other thing that we're tempted to do is to so water it down by our over-interpretation of it that we make it virtually toothless. Okay? It has no bite left we would say it's for another people or, or it's for another time or, or both. Okay. We'd raise all kinds of exceptions, what I call the but what abouts. But what about this situation? But what about that situation? And you need to know today I'm going to raise way more questions for you than I'm going to answer. Okay. I'm not going to answer the but what abouts. I can't. But we must, after we leave this place today, wrestle through, what is Jesus after? I want to focus today on the center. I want to throw at the bullseye. Not principally about rules or exceptions, or but what about, as important as those are. But obviously, when you think about Jesus' words, though, they do need some splaining, don't they? I mean, these are crazy words. And uh, you just think about walking here and living them out, and they... They, they mess with you. Um, first thing, though, they, these words cannot be purely and simply literal. Okay? Jesus is not just talking about specifically a case where someone would come up to you and slap you on the right cheek or ask you to carry their gear an extra mile. Okay? These are representative things, not purely literal things. Because, after all, um, Jesus says don't resist an evil person, but elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, we find places like this, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Or, or Paul would say, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So Jesus is using language here that's symbolic, it's representative. He's not giving us a new set of rules, a new set of laws. Jesus is asking you about your heart. He's after your heart, first and foremost. He's saying, this is the kind of people I want you to be. This is what it means to live life in the kingdom. This is what it means for you and me to be like Christ. This kind of stuff. So, to flesh out this idea that we're not supposed to resist an evil person, Jesus trots out not one, not two, not three, but four examples. 
so that we'll get a sense for what he's talking about. And I imagine one of these four is probably for you. So pay attention as we go through. Starting in verse 38, Jesus says, You've heard what it was, that was said, and he's quoting the Old Testament again, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, that legislation was given to God's people to assure justice. I mean, it sounds really harsh, but it's the way a good law works. I mean, you want the punishment to fit the crime, right? This is a prescription for that to happen. But it's also a protection against escalating vengeance. You know, the kind of stuff that happens on the playground. You shove me, I push you. You punch me, I take you down, okay? Uh, it doesn't just happen on the playground. It's, it's embedded in some of our world's prevalent philosophies. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev, a Soviet statesman, famously wrote back in 1971 during the communist heyday. He's speaking as a communist. He says, we had no use for the policy of the Gospels, where it says, if someone slaps you, just turn the other cheek. We had shown that anyone who slapped us on our cheek would get his head kicked off. That was the communist philosophy. And it is just that kind of escalation of violent justice that this eye-for-eye and tooth-for-tooth law was prohibiting, even though it feels so right to us when we're provoked, to strike back twice as hard. Jesus, though, as he has done in the previous, you've heard it said, but I say to you kind of teaching, he's raising the bar so that it's not just about rules, it's about your and my heart. He's after our heart. And that's why he says in verse 39, but I tell you, you've heard it said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. This is the first example that Jesus gives us. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And it's often pointed out, if you read what's been written about this and think about it, um, we live in a predominantly right-handed world. You know, over nine out of every ten people are right-handed. So they point out that Jesus' mention of the right cheek here is significant. He's anticipating a right-handed slapper. And if I were to have Daniel Cresswell come up here and I wanted to slap him, me being right-handed, on the right cheek, I'd have to backhand him. Okay? Jesus is anticipating a backhanded slap from a right-handed slapper uh, in this particular case, which in that day was a huge insult. It wasn't just a slap, it was an insult. So that if you took somebody to court and tried to litigate this and get damages for being slapped, you could get twice as much damage for a backhanded slap as a forehanded slap because it literally added insult to injury. So Jesus here has in mind that someone has insulted you. Someone has dishonored you. It's a personal matter. But notice he doesn't just say, take that first blow. He says, turn the other cheek and take the second blow. So essentially, that would be an open-handed slap. That would be adding injury to insult. And he says, take it. Jesus says, take it. 
Somebody said the first blow in this scenario belongs to your adversary. The second blow belongs to God. But the third blow belongs to you. What they mean is, he can hit you once, he can hit you twice, but the third shot's yours, take him down, okay? It's not what Jesus is teaching. It's not even close to what Jesus is teaching. It's not take two and then take him. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Do you understand how crazy, radical what Jesus' teaching is here? He says, don't retaliate to protect your honor. Don't retaliate to defend your reputation, even at the risk of insult and even injury. Why would Jesus say this? He doesn't give us an explanation in here, because so and such and so and so. I don't think he has to, because Jesus lives this out in the life that flows out of this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount starts the story of Jesus' life in Matthew's Gospel. But he lives this out. You see it at the cross. The soldiers, as they had arrested him, they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? And he just turned the other cheek. He didn't didn't retaliate. Peter puts it this way. He says, when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is calling us not to retaliate, not to defend our honor or our reputations, but to be willing to suffer for doing good just like him. See, Jesus is calling us to be just like him. It's what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means to follow Christ. So will you. You're loaded up with this teaching from Jesus. Will you obey it? Will you walk out of this room and obey it? Will you follow his example? Will you trust him? Will you trust him so that you will follow him and do what seems to be contrary to every fiber of your being when someone wrongs you and not retaliate? And not write a rebuttal? And not defend yourself? Would you go so far as to even turn the other cheek? Now, Jesus gives us a second example of what it means not to exist, resist excuse me, an evil person. In verse 40, he says, If someone wants to sue you, so we have a lawsuit going on, and take your tunic, it was an interior garment, we'll call it a shirt in modern day language. Let him have your cloak, your outer garment, your coat, we'll say. As well, So Jesus says, if somebody sues you, wants your shirt, give them your shirt. But don't just give them your shirt. Give them your coat. And this is, this is fascinating in light of the culture because clothes were expensive. And they did not have like uh, walk-in closets of clothes. Average person, maybe two shirts, probably one coat. So when Jesus is saying this, this is a very costly act. And you go back to the Old Testament, and they had teaching on these matters. Jesus, again, referring to the Old Testament. Uh, an example is in the book of Exodus. It says, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, don't be like a money lender and charge him interest. 
if you take your neighbor's cloak as your pledge, okay, this is what Jesus is talking about, return it to him by sunset. So if you take a guy's coat as a pledge for a debt, you've got to get it back to him by sunset every day because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. It gets cold at night. He needs his coat. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I'll hear, for I am compassionate. The taking of the shirt, according to Old Testament law, was permitted. But if you took their coat, you had to give it back every night. You had to track them down every night and give it back to them. You could use it during the day, but you had to give it back to them at night when it got cold. So what does Jesus say? Let him take your shirt. We get the expression, the shirt off your back. And give him your coat too. And this is a sacrificial act. It's probably their only coat. Go above and beyond what the law would require, Jesus says. Be wildly generous, even to the one who is your legal opponent, even if he accuses you unjustly. Because remember, this is an example of what it means to not resist evil. So probably this lawsuit's unjust, or you're being falsely accused in this matter. Again, no retaliation, Jesus says. But he goes beyond even that. And he says, do a kindness to your accuser. Give him your coat. There's a fellow named Julio Diaz. He was a 31-year-old Bronx social worker. And on his way home one night, he just wanted to do what he did every night. Stop by his favorite diner, get a bite to eat. Only one thing stood in his way from doing just that on this particular night, a mugger. When Diaz stepped off the train and onto the subway platform, a teenager ran up to him, pulled out a knife, and demanded Diaz hand over his wallet. Realizing it wasn't worth a fight, Diaz fished the wallet out of his pocket, gave it to the boy. And much to the mugger's surprise, though, Diaz decided to go the extra mile, and as the teen ran away, Diaz called out, Look, if you're going to be robbing people for the rest of the night, you might as well take my coat to keep you warm. Shocked, the boy stopped in his tracks, and Diaz explained that it was quite clear the teen needed money, so he told him, keep the wallet, take the coat, and if he wanted, grab a bite to eat with Diaz at his favorite diner. The boy was too shocked to say no. So as the two ate dinner at Diaz's favorite diner, the teen marveled over how many dishwashers and waitresses offered Diaz a wave or a friendly word. He figured Diaz must own the place. And when the boy shared his observation, Diaz smiled and said, haven't you been taught you're supposed to be nice to people? Yeah, the teen replied, but I didn't think people actually behaved that way. So the two continued to talk about life and other matters, and when the bill finally came, Diaz told the boy that he needed his wallet if he was going to pay for this. <laughs> so the boy gave it back without even thinking about it. And Diaz paid for the meal and offered the teen 20 bucks, and he asked that his would-be mugger surrender the knife, which he did. And when Diaz told his mother about the encounter, she said, you're the type of kid that if somebody asks you for the time, you give them your watch. Are you that kind of person? You give away more than you have to? More than what's required of you? Especially to your accuser? Would you do that? See, Jesus is calling us to something that matters more than our own interests. He's calling us to follow Him. 
This is the way of Christ. This giving away. You know, it's, it's fascinating. Um, when Jesus is about to go to the cross in John 19, it says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of the soldiers with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. If you think about it carefully, what happened right there is Jesus gave away both of his garments. He could have stopped it. He gave it away at the cross. Will you put others' interests even your accusers' interests above your own such that you will willingly give what they ask of you and offer more, just like your dear Lord and Savior did for you. Well, Jesus is not done with us yet. He has a third example. It says in verse 41, If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. We get our saying from this uh, going the extra mile comes from this teaching of, of Jesus. The image here is, is of military conscription. In that day, the Jews were at, 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 it was an occupied land by the Romans. And the Roman soldiers had legal right to mandate that the locals carry their bags for one mile. So a soldier could come up to you, throw his bags down, say, carry my bags. No matter what you were doing, no matter what was going on at that moment, legally, you were bound to carry his bags for one mile. It was um, compulsory, involuntary servitude. It was demeaning, and the Jews hated it. I mean, imagine if U.S. soldiers, they do not, but imagine if they had this right in Iraq, how that would be responded to if they could come up to somebody and say, carry my pack for a mile. That's kind of what was going on in, in this scenario that Jesus is envisioning and alluding to here. So the Jews hated it, so they had it counted out to the step, thousand steps, not one more. And Jesus says, carry the thousand. And then carry it a thousand more. Carry it one mile. And then carry it one mile more. Why would Jesus ask this of us? Because it's the way of Christ. To serve. To be more concerned about the soldier who asks than my inconvenience in carrying. About the humiliation of being made to do what someone else asked me to do. To take up our cross and follow him is the language that Jesus uses elsewhere. You know, it's interesting. There might actually be one example of this in the Bible. It comes from this passage in Luke chapter 23. As they led Jesus away, carrying his cross, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and they put the cross, the Roman soldiers did, on Simon and made him carry it behind Jesus.
to carry our cross and follow Christ means to go the extra mile. To stun our oppressors by our willing response. How do you respond when you're compelled to go the extra mile at work? When unjustly in your mind, your boss says, I need you to do X, and it's not your job. How do you respond? How do you respond if you're an athlete and your coach unjustly, no fault of your own, asks you to go the extra mile, literally? How do you respond? When your spouse makes not an unreasonable request, but an unreasonable demand, how do you respond? Do you trust him such that you will follow him even in those circumstances? A fourth example. In verse 42, Jesus says, Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It seems to me that this is some kind of, again, unjust situation because Jesus is using as an example of how not to resist an evil request. Someone doing evil. So we would say at least this is someone asking who doesn't deserve to get anything from you. Jesus elsewhere would elaborate on this in Luke. He says, if you lend from those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Without expecting to get anything back. And again, all the but whatabouts are coming up. We're thinking, I'm going to go broke. <laughs> Just those TV commercials, you know, with the kid with the big tear, they're asking me to give. I, I, I'll be broke by the end of the month. There's just no way. First of all, Jesus is envisioning a personal request. Probably not got television commercials in mind. This is where someone approaches you, and based on Old Testament similarities, probably it's someone who's a believer, someone in the, in the family of God's people has come to you. Um, but again, it's probably someone undeserving. What are you going to do? You know, last week, I'm on my way home. Uh, we're just clearing out the parking lot at the end of the day. And a guy pulls up in his truck. And, it's, and he's, he's in, the, in the truck. He rolls down the truck, to, to the window of the truck to yell at a, a couple of us who are off a little bit. And I can see his daughter hiding in the front seat. It's probably, I don't know, 10, 12-year-old daughter. Just hiding. She's actually got the hood of her sweatshirt pulled over her face. And she's bowed down. She's so embarrassed at what her dad is about to do. And he yells out. He says, hey. Guys, I need some money. I forgot my credit card, and I got to go by the store and pick up a few things on the way home. My wife asked me to and said, I could really use about 40 bucks. His daughter's under the dash by now. Just can't believe her dad is asking this. And so I had some cash. So I go over to help. I got to fight my way through two other North Wakers to be able to help this guy because they want to get there first. Now, if he was an addict you know, who was seeking cash for his addiction, of course, love might constrain me to deal with him differently. If he was a different kind of addict, and he was asking for a Lexus upgrade, love might constrain me to deal with him differently. But if it's a matter of need, 
what will you do? If you're asked to give, and whoever's asking doesn't deserve it, maybe they have spoken ill of you, maybe they have dissed you, maybe they have messed with your kids, maybe they've treated you badly, and now they need some money, and they come and ask you, what are you going to do? What if they probably aren't going to pay you back? If asked, will you give? Do you trust him that much to follow him into a dangerous place with your money? This is the way of Christ who gave his life for us who were so undeserving. What are all these examples saying to us? Obviously, they're calling us not to retaliate, not to defend our honor, our reputation. But beyond that, they're calling us to trust Christ. They're calling us to follow him and to serve those who do not deserve to be served in his name. These are to be our patterns, not the exceptions. This is to be our heart, not just new rules that we keep. We are to trust Christ. We are to follow him. We are to love him this way. These thoughts from John Piper helped me. He says, I cannot escape the implication that behind and within these commands is the demand to be radically free from the love of money and from the need for earthly security and honor. He says, I infer in all these commands, Jesus is calling for a change of heart that looks to Jesus and his reward rather than what this world can give. Are you willing to trust him and love him such that you will follow him? Now, why is Jesus asking this of us? There's a number of reasons. Um, But I, I think centrally, the heart of the matter lies in the sixth and last of those. You've heard it said, but I say to you teachings that Jesus is about to do next. In verse 43 of chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says we are to love our enemies. And that's what's behind turning the other cheek, giving them our shirt and our coat, going the extra mile, giving to the one who asked, because we are to love as he has loved. We're to love our enemies. There's a guy named Ghassan Thomas, He's a pastor in one of the few public churches in Baghdad. Um, His congregation, after Saddam was overthrown, erected a sign on their building. Maybe you saw pictures of it. It said, Jesus is the the light of the world, right there in Baghdad. And uh, following that, the church was raided by bandits and left, who left behind a threat on a piece of cardboard. It read, Jesus is not the light of the world. Allah is. You have been warned. And the note was signed, 
the Islamic Shiite party. In response, Pastor Ghassan loaded a van with children's gifts and medical supplies, which were in critically short supply, <coughs> excuse me, following the American invasion, and they drove to the headquarters of the Islamic Shiite party. After presenting the gifts and supplies to the sheikh, Ghassan told the leader, Christians have love for you because our God is a God of love. And he then asked permission to read from the Bible, and he turned to Jesus' words in John 8, I am the light of the world. And he then showed the cardboard note to the sheikh, and the Muslim leaders, astounded by Pastor Thomas's actions, apologized. And the sheikh vowed, this will not happen again. You are my brother. If anyone comes to kill you, it will be my neck first. And the sheikh later even attended Pastor Thomas's ordination service at the church. Will you love your enemies? Will you trust Jesus enough to follow him in his pattern of loving wildly and indiscriminately? See, this is what it means, Jesus says, for us to be like our Father. In verse 45, he says, Do this so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He's using the like Father, like Son analogy. Do this so you'll be like your Father, he's saying. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The father gives lavishly, liberally to the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous. He sustains them all. He showers rain and gives sun such that when you drive through my neighborhood, you know, my neighbor's lawn, my my pagan neighbor's lawns don't look any worse than my lawn doesn't just rain and the sun shine on my lawn. In fact, uh, truth be told, their lawn is a heck of a lot better than my lawn. Um, I think this is largely due to chem lawn and not due to the restraining of the love of God uh, on my part. He just lavishes it on it on us all. And this, Jesus said, is, is the way the Father loves. It's not like the people around us. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Why would God reward that? Because even the tax collectors who are low-life traitorous thieves and scum, even they do that. And if you greet only your brothers, greet is a blessing in this day. Wish well on them. On your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans do that. See, to live distinctive lives, we must Love not just those who love us back, but we have to love our enemies as well. We are to love like God, indiscriminately, lavishly, friends, family, and enemies alike. And then, Jesus says, then you'll be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not that you'll be sinless perfect, but you will love like God. Your love will be perfect. It'll be full. It'll be complete. It'll include us all. And that's why we turn the other cheek and give them our shirt and our coat and go the extra mile and give to the one who asks. It's the way of Christ. It's the way he loved us. This morning, 
I wonder if you realize that you are being loved like this. That no matter what went on the night before, when the sun comes up or the rain comes down, God is lavishing his love on you. It's an expression of his love for you. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've acted, God is loving you in this way. And the great demonstration of that love, the Bible tells us that it's not the rain and it's not the sun, as important as those are, but he says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, before we cleaned up our act, when we were God's enemies, Christ went to the cross with us in mind. He died for us. wonder if you are a follower of Christ, will you love this way? Will you love those who insult you and do you harm? Will you love those who sue you and oppress you and come to you looking for a handout in cash when they don't deserve it? You even love your enemies the way you've been loved? I like the way John Piper put it. He says, Jesus says, yes, love them. Love them. If they kill you, love them. If they take away your father, love them. If they destroy your home, love them. Love your enemies. Be that kind of person. Be so changed on the inside that it really is possible. So the point, he says, seems to be don't stop loving because the person does things that offend you or dishonor you or hurt your feelings or anger you or disappoint you or frustrate you or threaten you or kill you. Love your enemies. means keep on loving them. Keep on loving them. Jesus is calling us not just to do good things for our enemy, like greeting them and helping supply their needs. He's also calling us to want their best and to express those wants in prayers when the enemy is nowhere around. Our hearts should want their salvation and want their presence in heaven and want their eternal happiness. So we pray like Paul prayed for the Jewish people, many of whom who made his life very, very hard. My heart's desire and prayer to God is for their salvation. And so we love our enemies. And as we approach the Lord's table this morning, it's for us to remember God's great love for us, demonstrated through the brokenness of the body of His Son and the shedding of His Son's blood on the cross. It's also a chance for us to renew our commitment to pass that love on. Having been loved like that, to pass it on, even to our enemies. As we approach the table, I'd like to prepare us with a prayer that was delivered by Martin Luther King Jr. at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama on the 17th of November in 1957. If you'll bow with me. This is how it goes. He says, this morning as I look into your eyes and into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom 
we will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies, to bless those persons that cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us. And we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. Oh God, help us in our lives and in all of our attitudes to work out this controlling force of love, this controlling power that can solve every problem that we confront in all areas. We talk about politics. We talk about the problems facing our atomic civilization. Grant that all men will come together and discover that as we solve the crisis and solve these problems, the international problems, the problems of atomic energy, the problems of nuclear energy, and yes, even the race problem, let us join together in a great fellowship of love and bow down at the feet of Jesus. Give us this strong determination. In the name and the spirit of this Christ, we pray. Amen. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. In the same fashion, after the, after the meal, he took a cup and he spoke of a new covenant that would be in his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. Then he asked his friends to do this also in remembrance of him. Would you pray with me as we ready ourselves to approach the table? Father, it's time for us to come to the table and have a meal with you. For a lot of us, Lord, before we come, there's something we need to take care of, and that's a confession, an acknowledgement, an apology for the way we've treated our enemies. We've not followed the example of your son. When mistreated, we've mistreated back and maybe stepped it up a notch. When asked for help, we've denied it. We've resisted it. We've said it was ours. You can't have it. Father, forgive us. We have not trusted you. We have not followed the ways of your son. So we come mindful of the great grace that's ours on the cross and in the resurrection. And we come to underscore our commitment to pass that grace on, to pass on that love to those who do not deserve it. People just like us. So Jesus, we come to remember the height and depth and width and breadth of your love for us. As you bore our sins, as you suffered beatings, mockings, and that crown of sharp thorns and those nails in your hands and feet, and death itself for us. So this, Jesus, is for you. We worship you now with our obedience.